You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sancreia, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Apinatus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman, Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, J.B. Phillips, writing about the first century, this, when this letter was penned and delivered, He said this, the Christian faith took root and flourished in an atmosphere almost entirely pagan, where cruelty and sexual immorality were taken for granted, where slavery and inferiority of women were almost universal, while superstition and rival religions with all kinds of bogus claims existed on every hand. With this pagan chaos, the early Christians, by the power of God within them, lived lives as sons of God, demonstrating purity and honesty, patience and genuine love. They were, and I love this line, they were pioneers of a new humanity. And J.B. Phillips goes on to say, perhaps we would accomplish what they accomplished if we believed what they believed. Now, something that we will probably take for granted here in a church filled with men and women in, last time I checked, the most diverse city in America, is that a list like this to the church in the first century in Rome would have been absolutely wild, so strange. This would have been very countercultural. This would have sounded otherworldly, like radical revolutionary language here. It was common, a common practice in Rome to assign differing values to people based on their social status, based on their race, and based on their gender. Very few people were actually recognized as full persons, which made a list of people to celebrate and commend and greet and even 
smack a kiss on them, that would make that list very, 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 very short and limited. In fact, at this time in history, only the male head of the households were considered a full person. Women and children were considered property. And then there were large portions of the population that were servants or slaves. They were possessions, not people. Many individuals were recognized as only being partially human or less than human or sort of subhuman, but very, very rarely actually human. In fact, in fact, when slave children were born, they wouldn't even bother giving them names. Typically, slave children would be named based on their birth order. So they would be named first, second, third, fourth, or as we see later on in Romans chapter 16, uh, tertius or quartus, which is literally third or fourth. Not even worthy of like a unique name, it's just like two. Or names like we see in the New Testament letter of Philemon, the name Onesimus, which literally means useful. I'm sure this child will be useful at its task. Or names like that we see listed here in Romans 16, Nereus. Before you laugh or smirk, Nereus means lump. Which is probably a very unfortunate and sad reality that when this child was delivered, it had some sort of physical deformity that forever defined their life. They were named by their special need. They were named Lump. So we're going to look at this passage. I'm going to teach this passage a little bit differently than I typically would. I want to look at some themes that we see here. But I think we need to look at some, not only historic context, but we need to get honest about our own cultural moment. So where we're going to begin is here. Where we're going to begin is dehumanizing. What we see highlighted in this trend that I just mentioned is that human history is marked by dehumanizing patterns that reduce people. This is the result of sin. This is the result of evil in our world. What is sin? Sin is not just the, the bad things that we ought not do. Sin is primarily a condition of humanity. And what sin at its core seeks to do is to dehumanize people. Think about the serpent slithering to Eve in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. When the serpent tempted Eve, he said, when you eat of this tree, you will become like God. Now I want you to think about that. The lie beneath the lie is that Eve or anyone else should be something other than human. That being human was somehow not good enough. That being human was somehow not right for her. And the irony is that when you attempt to ascend to the place of God in your life, you end up descending beneath your humanity. You do not rise, you fall. Sin not only causes us to forfeit our own humanity, but sin also causes us to strip other people of their humanity. Think about the ways that we sin against people, we hurt people, we hate people, we manipulate people, we reduce people, we isolate people, we try to control people. They're all dehumanizing someone else. This is done on a personal level, but it's also done on a larger scale as well. It's a societal level. Brene Brown explains it like this. She said, most of us believe that people's 
basic human rights should not be violated, that crimes like murder, rape, and torture are wrong. Most people agree on that. But she said successful dehumanizing, however, creates moral exclusion. It's something more subtle. She said groups targeted based on their identity, whether it's their gender or their ideology or their skin color or their ethnicity or their religion or their age or their political affiliation or fill in the blank, are depicted as less than or criminal or even evil. We talked about this earlier. Think about the people that we have considered less than because we think differently than them. The targeted group eventually falls out of the scope of who is naturally protected by the moral order. This is moral exclusion, and she said, dehumanization is at its core. So examples of this, in Rwanda, in the 1990s, what came before the genocide that we read of in the history books was dehumanizing language. You can see this, I was reminded of this recently as I rewatched the movie Hotel Rwanda, where the Hutus, called the Tutsis, Cockroaches. And what do you do with cockroaches? You exterminate them, clearly. Or in the 20th century in Europe, before the Holocaust, Nazis referred to Jews as rats. Well, what do you do to rats? You trap them and you poison them, of course. Or consider the way that our own nation, in order to justify harsh, unjust treatment of indigenous people, considered large portions of our population as savages. What do you do to savages? You tame them. You control them. You make them more civilized. And if they do not cooperate, you drive them away. Or consider the many demeaning ideologies wrapped up around the the treatment of African Americans in our nation over the last few hundred years. The identities assigned to black brothers and sisters. Or consider the big compromise that was made in the 1780s that allowed black slaves to be considered three-fifths of a person. And that had nothing to do with human dignity. It had everything to do with balancing power and taxation among states. And let's not forget the, the treatment of women, not just in our own history as a people in America, but throughout human history. You see, dehumanizing often starts with creating an image of someone or creating an image of a group as being somehow subhuman. And when someone is viewed subhuman, it's not long before they are treated as such. Today in the digital age, we are on the cusp of a new world of dehumanization. Think about how people are being objectified and digitally manipulated and things like deep fakes reduced. People are being reduced down to content and images to be passed around and consumed. Let's not forget that women and children are still being trafficked for the sake of pornography and even consider some of the subtle, subtle ways that this occurs through hookup apps and dating apps where we deem someone worthy or not worthy by the simple swipe of a finger. You're in, you're out. You are worthy, you are not worthy. The ways that we dehumanize are gonna shift throughout human history. But the problem at its core, sin, remains. And that is why we continue to repeat the same broken patterns over and over and over again. 
The result of sin in any culture, no matter how progressive it claims to be, the result of sin is this. It is the stripping of identity, it is the stripping of human value, and it is the stripping of human dignity. It is the loss of personhood. Sin is dehumanizing. But let's look secondly at the theme, and I think that this gets at the core of what Paul is doing in this very strange list of greetings. Let's look secondly at the theme of rehumanizing. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ and him crucified, is the reversal of this destructive trend that we see through sin. The gospel offers us the gift of a new identity. The gospel offers us unthinkable value. And the gospel offers us the restoration of dignity. Now now let's look at those one by one. Jesus came into the world to offer us first a new identity. Jesus offers his children a new identity, one that is not based on success or failure or popularity or obscurity or power or weakness, but a brand new identity as beloved children of God. And I want you to pay attention that when Paul begins this list, he begins by commending and greeting a woman named Phoebe. Now, we're going to talk about how remarkable that is, by the way. Again, this is so otherworldly that he would start a first century list in Rome with Phoebe. But the first thing that he says about her is not regarding her work or her status, although it is important and he's going to mention that in a moment. I want you to pay attention how he begins. He begins like this, verse one. I commend to you our what? My sister. This is the first identity that I need you to know about this woman named Phoebe. She is our sister. For the child of God, this is the truest thing about you. You may be a lot of things. You may do a lot of things. You may even accomplish a lot of things, but the truest thing about you is this. You are a beloved daughter of God. You are a beloved son of God. Amen? Amen. Jesus also gives to us unthinkable value. He says, welcome, Phoebe, welcome her in the Lord in a way that is worthy of the saints. Worthy. The Apostle Peter would put it this way, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, or in other words, the dehumanizing patterns of human sin, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. How are we redeemed? Not with gold or silver, not with human might or power, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And so what that means is for the Christian, your life is now forever attached to the value of Jesus' blood. Which is described as more precious than gold or silver. More precious than riches. More precious than fame or acclaim. You don't receive your value from status or success or wealth or beauty or gender or even your religious performance. It's not based on what people say about you. It's not based on what people think about you. It's not based upon what people have done to you. It's not even based on what you make of yourself. Your value comes from Jesus' blood. 
The blood that brings forgiveness. The blood that brings beauty. The blood that brings freedom into your life. And thirdly, Jesus restores our dignity. Jesus offers us the restoration of human dignity. In C.S. Lewis's great divorce, the author is in this deep dream. And in this dream, he's being guided, he's on this like tour through heaven. And as he's seeing all these sights, he's hearing about all these things about heaven, all of a the sudden there's this loud, bright procession that begins to move their way. When I'm reading this or when I've seen it in the play, I'm imagining like a, a parade in New Orleans. And he describes it as spirits dancing, people singing, musicians are playing their instruments, people are going wild. It's just this amazing parade and it's this procession that's moving toward them. And as they get closer, he realizes that this entire thing is for a woman. And as this woman comes into view, it describes her as beautiful and radiant like nothing he's ever seen before. And the main character, he turns to his tour guide and he says, you know, is that, um, is that, and he says, nope, no, it's someone you've never heard of. Her name was Sarah Smith and she lived in Golders Green. And he responds, he says, well, she seems like she was pretty important. And he says, oh yes, for sure. She was one of the great ones. But remember, he says, that fame in this country and fame on earth are two very different things. And then he asks, oh, who are all these people? And his guide says, well, those are the people that became like sons and daughters to her, her friends, the ones that she loved and the ones that loved her, the ones that she made feel important. And the narrator is just staring at the scene in pure amazement. And he once more turns to his guide and he says, or the guide tells him, in other words, and now the abundance of life she has in Christ flows over into them. So he's describing what's actually happening. The life of Christ that is in her is flowing over into this wild party. And he says it's like, when you throw a stone into a pool and it ripples and the ripples spread further and, and further, who knows where it will end? And he said, there's joy enough in the little finger, I guess the pinky finger, of a great saint such as a woman like this. Enough joy in her little finger to awaken all the dead things of the universe back to life. In other words, when the beauty and the power of Jesus Christ that indwells every single believer, when it is truly embraced, when we truly lean into it, when we truly realize it and live it out, he says the ripple effect is endless. Romans 16 is a list of Sarah Smith's. People you would have never otherwise heard of. No ancient news agencies are writing about these people. These are not the kind of folks that we would consider famous or influencers. Probably don't have a lot of followers. Probably don't have a lot of likes. But as the writer of Hebrews put it, these were the people of whom the world was not worthy. These are those celebrated in the kingdom of God. These are those restored 
to dignity through Jesus Christ. So let's look at this list. Phoebe, a sister, and a servant, or literally a deacon and a leader in the church near Corinth, one who was generous with all of her belongings and now is courageous enough to travel a very, very long and dangerous distance between Corinth to Rome to deliver this letter to the church. And Prisca, or as we know her from the book of Acts, Priscilla and Aquila, a teaching team like no other. Courageous and daring leaders that despite the fact that they had been driven out of Rome for five years, they returned to minister there and even opened their homes so that the church could gather. Beloved, Apentatus, the first, now think about this, the first one in Asia to say yes to Jesus. Talk about a trailblazer. Mary, gosh, she worked hard to serve the church in even the most overlooked and unglamorous tasks. And Andronica and Junia, willing to be imprisoned for the faith, trustworthy believers, even trusted among the apostles themselves. And Pileatus, don't, don't know much about him, but he was loved by the Lord, important in God's sight. Urbanus, he was a fellow minister, one that Paul considered an equal partner in the gospel, and Stachys, whom Paul loved dearly, and Apelles, who found his acceptance in Christ and we cannot forget about the slaves in the house of Aristobulus and also the slaves in the house of Narcissus and also Herodian, the Jewish believer, and Tryphena and Tryphosa, those who were known for their work for the Lord, and beloved Persis, who held nothing back for Jesus' sake. And there was Rufus, who was chosen by God and actually following in the footsteps of his father Simeon or Simon, who carried the cross of Jesus Christ. And let's not forget his mother, who treated believers like they were her own children. Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas. I'm going to struggle with this one. <laughs> Philologus, was that right, Shane? <laughs> Julia, Nereus, his sister, Olympus. And anyone and everyone dear to this church. Now, some things to notice about this list of people that are, it's probably going to be lost on us because it just sounds like a bunch of strange names. And they're like, oh, I recognize Narcissus. Um, but it just sounds like a list of, of strange names. So let me point out a few unique things about this list and the people that are compiled together. Some of these people are slaves. Some of them are free. Some of them are currently imprisoned. Some of them are free. Some are poor, some are wealthy, some are Jews, some are Gentiles, some are from Christian upbringing, some are from pagan upbringing, some are women, some are men. In fact, among this approximately 27 people commended and greeted here, almost half of this list is women. And seven of those women, Phoebe, Priscilla, Junius, Tryphena, Tryphosa, Persis, and Rufus's mother, are acknowledged for their significant contribution to ministry and their leadership roles. This, I believe, is what Francis Schaeffer was talking about when he said this famous line, there are no little people and no big people in the true spiritual sense. There is no such thing as little people. In other words, there is no such thing as an important person and an unimportant person, not in the kingdom of God at least. There are only two true categories 
before the presence of God. There are only two true categories in the kingdom of God. Those who have offered themselves completely to Christ and those who have not. No little people, no big people. He said just consecrated people. Consecrated people. For those who are in Christ by faith, for those who have surrendered themselves to the life of Christ within them, there is absolutely, and hear me, there is absolutely nothing insignificant about your life. And there's absolutely nothing insignificant about your contribution. And there is absolutely nothing insignificant about you in eternity. And what this means for us as a community is that if the work of sin and evil is to dehumanize, so assuming you agree with me on this, then I believe the work of gospel ministry, the work of God's people, the work of reality, church, then is to rehumanize, to join Jesus in loving people back to life, actively seeking to reverse the damage that's been done by sin through the powerful ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. John Perkins once said that you you don't give people dignity, you affirm it. We can't be mistaken here. The call of God's people is not to give people dignity. God gives dignity. What do we do? We recognize it. We celebrate it. We commend it. We point it out. And we demonstrate how the gospel restores men, women, and children back to the dignity that we were created for. So how do we do this? Well, what we see here is Paul begins by commending And he specifically commends the people that culture would not. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, faithful, brave, generous, deacon, servant, leader in the church. He also does it by greeting. He's showing how you acknowledge the personhood of another person. Greet this person and greet this person and greet this person. He could have just said greet once, but he continues this pattern. Greet them, greet them, greet them. We never move beyond greeting one another in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then there's one last thing here I want to point out and spend just a little bit of time on as I end. How do we affirm the dignity in other people? How do we lean in to what Paul is displaying here? Well, I believe it's through affection. Look at me in the final verse, verse 16. Greet one another with a what? A holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. So here's my final point. Redeeming affection. This final instruction to greet one another with a kiss is probably gonna be something that we'd be tempted to gloss over. I know I was you know, as in preparation to preach this passage. Or it's gonna be something that we're gonna be tempted to simply ignore because we are living in like COVID season. I just ran into someone I hadn't seen in a while at the little Lincoln Center Christmas thing, by the way, too early for Christmas, Lincoln Center. And we're like, I didn't know if I should shake, pound, I'm like so awkward with affection right now because I don't know what people's boundaries are. And so then we read a passage like this where we're like supposed to press our lips together. We're like, okay, Paul, no. 
So why end such a significant letter with an instruction like this? Why kiss? Here's what I think. I think because it reminds us that hearing this letter and those of us hearing this letter, for us, there's a, a, a real relational way to live in light of the gospel. Transformation is not just something that we experience theoretically or personally. Transformation is something that we help experience as a community. Transformation is something relational. And that the theological beauty, and oh my gosh, Romans is beautiful. But that the, the, the theological beauty represented in Romans is to work its way out in our lives in very practical ways, and not just practical ways, but in loving ways. We don't just read our way into transformation. We don't just think our way into transformation. We kiss our way into a changed life. We affection our way into the life that Jesus has designed for us. The true test of whether or not Romans has changed your life and it has actually caused you to look more like Jesus Christ. I don't think it's gonna be based on the amount of verses that you have memorized now or your ability to explain complex theological ideas. I think the true test is whether or not you're willing to get awkwardly close to people. to get outside your comfort zone and to show care and affection. That's the point. I don't think the point is the kiss itself. So I'm not mandating a kiss today, especially not in COVID season. But I think the point is about being near to people and showing actual affection to people, redeeming affection. Paul would say in his famous letter to the Corinthians in, in chapter 13, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I am a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but if I have not love, I, I'm, I'm nothing. If I give, all, give away all that I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, I pay the ultimate sacrifice for the name of Jesus Christ, but have not love, I gain absolutely nothing. So why kiss? Because it causes us to stop the frantic motion of our life and stand still. You ever tried to kiss someone when you're moving? Nearly impossible. Why a kiss? Because it causes us to turn to those that we would generally be content to just brush shoulders with and stare them in the eyes and acknowledge their presence. Why a kiss? Because it reminds us that fellow believers are more our brothers and sisters than our own biological family. Prove me wrong. Why a kiss? Because it reminds us that we can be both known and loved. Why a kiss? Because Christianity is not digital or abstract or something lifeless and empty and theoretical. Christianity is embodied and real. Christianity is not abstract thoughts. Christianity, as the old worship song goes, is a sloppy, wet kiss. Why a kiss? Because it reminds us that we were made for depth and intimacy, not shallowness. Why a kiss? Because it reminds us that God is redeeming what the world has twisted and perverted. 
that the man or woman or child next to us is not a body to manipulate or to use or a piece of discarded flesh, but a soul to extend the affection of Jesus Christ to. Why kiss? Because it teaches us that erotic, romantic love is not, no matter what culture tells us, is not ultimate. Sex isn't everything. Why kiss? Because God intends to heal us from the ways that we have been wounded through relationships and to give us hope that we can learn how to love and forgive and trust and be, be, be close to people again. Why kiss? Because it reminds us of the reconciling power of the cross of Jesus Christ that can make enemies friends and tears down the wall of hostility. Why kiss? Because it reminds us that in our struggle to believe, in our struggle to hope, in our struggle to keep going and persevere in the Christian life, we are not alone. You are not alone. Amen? Let's pray.